Welcome to our discussion on Point Duho. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Let's get started. Joe, after uh, three episodes back-to-back, anything you want to say to our audience about how much work you put into this and how tired you are? Uh, I'm not tired of preparing these. It is a lot of work, though. But uh, thankfully, we have an awesome audience, and that... That's our driver. There you go. And I'm, I'm sure they appreciated all the uh, uh, all the insight that you brought into Churchill in the last two weeks and uh, to Point Duho this week. I sure hope so. This is a really cool episode. Um, I've been, I was with you on both of your trips to Point Duho, and, and as I was reading it, I was, I was getting images in my mind of what it's like to be there. So I really appreciated the level of detail that you brought to that to this episode. It's very clear that you're passionate about oh, yeah. these guys. And you've been there, what, four times? Five uh, times? Four. Five, five total, times. yeah, okay. yeah, and it's it, it's very special each time because it like is. you, it's like how how did they do this? It is, and it's surreal to stand in the craters, oh yeah, and see that and walk through the uh, concrete shambles of <laughs> ruins and everything. Yeah, just... so let's start there. You mentioned the Atlantic Wall, and you've been to Pointe du Ho and to a couple other places on the French coastline. Describe for those of uh, in our audience who have not been there or seen pictures, what is it like to stand around those bunkers, and you know most of which have been destroyed by this point? And then I have a story about that about it after you're after you're done. Okay, so when we have gone to the Louvre, mm-hmm. it's been interesting to look at these paintings that have been crafted by masters. You can stand in front of it and see it, and in that way, it's an experience. Yeah, but when you go to these locations, you're standing amidst history. You can stand where the guns sat. Mm-hmm. You can you can walk down into the middle of a crater and realize you're walking within history. That this somehow is still preserved to a certain extent. Yeah, and you can be part of that experience. Mm-hmm. I remember on my first trip, actually, to Dunkirk, not which is not where Pont Ho is. It's another point further up the beach. I think I've told this story on this podcast before uh, in an earlier season, but it was my first. I think it was my first trip to France. It was with one of my professors at Hillsdale College, Dr. Tom Connor, who's fantastic in, in every respect. He sat our group down on part of the Atlantic Wall, and he's standing a little bit below us, probably eight or nine feet below us, because his wall is enormous. And he just has a stick, and he draws a map of France, and he proceeds to tell us the story of the Nazi invasion of France. Mm. And he said, it all culminates right here. And... He was such a great storyteller, and like you, we were, we were we were experiencing being where this happened, where this where this massive Nazi invasion ultimately reached its end was here at Dunkirk, and it was like you. You feel or I felt a part of that history in that uh, in that moment. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's almost surreal, yeah, to it, stand it really there is. and experience it. Yeah. How big are the craters at Point Du Ho for those who have not been there? So it depends on which crater. Some of them are smaller. Yeah. Some of them can fit a truck in it. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's substantial. I have a picture of you, which I think we should probably post on yeah. the uh, website. <laughs> was pretend- of uh, Joe pretending to be a uh, Terminator at the very base <laughs> like of how, a, or how, the, or how I enter Europe. Yeah. Like he, uh, yeah, he arrived in uh, in France. I'm this down. small little dot in the middle of this crater. Yeah, it's, it's it is unreal how big some of these things were. We sent our whole group down there at one point, didn't we? It was like eight yeah. or nine kids we, down we didn't there. Even come close to <laughs> filling it up. It, and these have filled in over time. I mean, imagine how big they were at the onset. Yeah. It, I I just can't can't even imagine that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's it's a testament to the destructive power of uh, of war, that it can literally reshape entire landscapes. And it and, did. And it did. And you see this all across Europe and the Far East and, and really everywhere on Earth. 
All right. So we talked about the location. Now let's talk about the soldiers. What makes the Rangers special? Because I have read accounts saying that a typical American GI would not have been able to do what they did at Point du Ho in terms of scaling the cliffs, fighting off the Germans, going inland, destroying the guns, coming back and holding out for three days. So what made the Rangers special? Was it added training, better equipment, just their their psychology, a combination of everything? But what makes them, made them special then and continues because they're still around, makes them special today? Well, I think this particular group, they did have extensive training. They trained in England on cliffs, trying to, to learn how to climb these rope ladders. They tried to find cliffs that were somewhat similar to, to the rock face that they would be on during mm-hmm. the battle and just went through these repetitive drills where it becomes almost like clockwork. You can only compensate so much for that, though, and then, and then you have that mindset that kicks in. And I think, as I said in the podcast, the mindset seemed to be the realization that there was nowhere else to go. Mm-hmm. There was only forward. Where does that come from? I, I don't know that I can speak to that exactly because not not having been there yeah it's it's hard to try and summarize it but the training that they went through really tried to simplify each step each task here's what will happen in stage one stage two stage three and so they kept doing these drills over and over and over again until as i said it became almost a reflex Mm -hmm. in terms of the rangers now they are uh, extensively trained to the point that uh, again there's that repetitive sense of the training still there in ranger training, from what I've read, they put you through so much that it does refine your focus, your, I don't want to say your spirit, but yeah, just just what, what you're determined to do mm-hmm. and helps you stay on task, on objective, without food sometimes, without water sometimes, really helps you to sharpen that skill of maintaining your focus on an objective. That is a very bad summary of what, what it takes to be a ranger. <laughs> But it's, it, it is an elite fighting force, and those that make it have determined to fight through every possible discomfort that you can imagine in order to achieve that, that end goal. It's the same way with the Green Berets, with the SEALs, and on a much, much higher extent, Delta Force. Yeah. Back to the guys in 1944. Their training, of course, as you said, it involved climbing cliffs and things like that. I know they wouldn't train under live fire, or at least I assume that they wouldn't. They wouldn't have other guys up, up at the top of the cliff shooting down at them. But do you know if they trained uh, in all weather? Were they prepared for what it ended up being a very rainy day, or were, were they kind of practicing in, in good weather? They were practicing in all elements, so okay. there was rain. Okay. I think the difference this morning was there was 40 minutes of rain soaking their ropes. Oh, so okay. the delay caused the rope to absorb all this water, the, yeah. both the seawater and the rain. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're dealing with this delay. They got lost. And finally, when they get there, everything's saturated. Yeah. And so, yes, they did train in rain, but not not to that extent. Mm-hmm. And not with bullets flying and, and grenades falling all around them. Actually, I was going to ask you about that because I have read that for the DD invasion, Allied forces did practice live fire. They, and there were accidents. They did until an accident. It was fairly early on in the uh, in the training program. I think it was late 1943, so seven or eight months before D-Day. That yeah, there was a was there like was an accident. Four- it, I I don't remember how many, but yeah, it was it was an accident on the south coast of England. I think that was the moment where some local British troops thought that the Germans were actually invading, and it was a practice exercise. Oh, and no. they were and they were. I think that's. I may be getting my two events mixed up. But I'm pretty sure that that a local British Home Guard unit 
saw these guys landing and were like, oh my gosh, the Germans are here. And so they opened fire and it was uh, an allied practice run oh, for D-Day. Yeah, and it killed several hundred, several hundred men. Pretty, pretty awful. And I'm pretty sure Eisenhower said, all right, no more live fire training after, th- after that. Yeah. Speaking of the weather, it seemed that the weather had a, played a huge role on D-Day overall because it's overcast, it's rainy, you can't really see where you're firing at beyond a couple hundred yards. Had the weather been better, do you think that the, the events of D-Day would have occurred differently? Do you think the Germans would have been able to be more effective in their resistance or would the Allies be more effective in their, in their attack? How do you think the weather, if you change the weather, right? it's, it's a what-if question. It's which, like payback time. Yeah, it's payback time. <laughs> and I expect you to give me an answer as complex and detailed as ones I get. <laughs> what if the weather had been different on D-Day, Joe? <laughs> what if, what if, what if? <laughs> You've well, asked me 3,700 of these things I do, over four I do. years, it's, and now it's, it's my time. time for my comeuppance. <laughs> so if you can see better, you can shoot better. True. So from the German standpoint, they would be able to see our ships, our crafts better. So yes, I think they would have been more precise. Uh, same way with the Allied ships. They would have been able to see guns a little bit better. Mm-hmm. The, they would have been able to see the bunkers a lot better. So yes, I think that the accuracy of the shooting would have improved tremendously. Mm-hmm. Would that have swayed things either way? That's the thing I I can't say for sure because they would both have the same advantage. Mm. The Allies had more guns in terms of in one concentrated place. The Germans had some big guns for sure, but not enough of them to to sink an entire fleet. Mm -hmm. So looking at it that way, I think the Allies would have had a better advantage if the skies had been clear, if there hadn't been the rain or the fog. Because a lot of the landing craft, as, as you know, landed kind of far out into the water. So the GIs had to hike through this water yeah. and and still move forward amidst machine gun, artillery, all kinds of hell being rained down on them. Mm-hmm. And it was the same way on the cliff. Like, would that first group have found the right cliff? I think they would have had a better that was opportunity. My, that was going to be my next point is if you could see, you would be more likely to land at the right spot. I mean, Omaha Beach was a tragedy and a, and a disaster because they landed in the wrong place. They landed a couple hundred yards down from where they were supposed to. Maybe that wouldn't have happened. Maybe you wouldn't have had that first group uh, get lost. So maybe we would have been more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. You brought up the... uh, the soldiers hitting a uh, a sandbar, and I want you to tell a, tell the, our audience the story, which again I think we've told in the past uh, of our experience out on that sandbar uh, on the very first AET trip that we took out uh, out to Normandy. Yeah, so John, you were actually giving an instruction similar to, to the one that your professor did in terms of drawing a map in the sand. Yeah, I stole Dr. Connor's yeah, idea. You totally did, and it, <laughs> it was great. Everyone was was engaged and asking about each event and the timeline and all that. So. I think you talked for about a half hour. Probably. Yeah. And so we're, we're out on this, what was the beach and turned into a sandbar. And suddenly we're surrounded by water because the tide is starting to come in. We got there that day at what, like 6.30 or 7? It was pretty early. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and the whole point of us getting there early was trying to be like, what was it like for the GIs who landed on the beach? Mm-hmm. So we realized that we're now cut off from the beach and- We weren't we, in any danger or we anything We weren't in any danger, like yeah. yeah. But we had to wade through, through the water, our backpacks held up <laughs> over our heads- to get back to the mainland because yeah. the, the our sandbar was shrinking quickly. It was a fun experience. And I think after that, we tried to do a run from the water to the seawall. That was before. That was the first thing we did when, yeah. we, when okay. we got there. Yeah. So, and uh, it was a trek. It was a trek. Yes. And without, without gear, without heavy boots, mm-hmm. and without being soaked. And uh, being shot at. And being shot at. Yeah. And so, I was at the without beach obstacles. with a gun shooting yeah. at you. No. <laughs> that, was, that was a bonus part yeah, of our trip. Yeah. Uh, John shooting at Surprise. us. For- 
from the no, cliff. No, 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 no. But, um, and there weren't any beach obstacles. There wasn't barbed wire. Landmines. Landmines, yeah. yeah. So we, we had some advantages. And even then, all of us were just spent. Yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. I think when we were wading through uh, to get back to the shore, you had what four backpacks that yeah. you were that you <laughs> were carrying everybody's backpack. over your head. Yeah, was, it was an interesting. Oh, experience. that was a, that was a fun experience. It was a fun experience. Yeah, I think the next time we went there is when we saw the landing craft yep. that's still in the sand. Mm-hmm. There's a Higgins boat, which was the landing craft used to uh, launch the troops on Omaha Beach. It's still there. It was holding a jeep. You can still see the Jeep tire mm-hmm. inside that that steel frame. It's again, it's surreal. Yeah, it is. And speaking of, you're you're, you're anticipating my questions here, and I appreciate that. Again, I don't, I didn't give these to Joe. He just he and he knows what I'm what I'm going to ask about next. <laughs> for, Higgins, once. <laughs> for once, for <laughs> once. Higgins boats and other uh, new technologies, D Day, and the requirements of getting 125,000 people from ships onto shore with heavy enemy opposition, necessitated the creation of all kinds of new technology. Higgins boats, uh, waterproof radios, things like that. Did that contribute to the chaos on Point Duho because so much of this stuff was untested? You mentioned that a bunch of radios failed. So what was the role of technology in the broader D-Day invasion and specifically the events that took place uh, at Point Duho? So for Operation Overlord, they created a lot of redundancies. So if you had, and all of this was to try and anticipate mechanical failure because sand is going to fall into your guns, ships were going to sink. They knew that there would be a lot of casualties. They actually expected a lot more yeah. than, than actually occurred, which was still first wave, 5,000, 6,000. 8,000 were killed. I think the total casualties was about 15,000, yeah. yeah. Which was, like you said, far less than, I mean, Churchill predicted to his wife, we talked about this last week, 20,000 men may die in that first day. Yeah. So it's thank God un- it was far yeah. fewer. But anyway, I'm sorry. They tried to create redundancies in equipment and supplies and so on. So in, in every landing craft, there were certain men who had a certain kind of gun. They always tried to have a backup is the point. They knew that equipment would fail. They had tested the radios and had thought that these weren't going to fail based on those tests, but more rain fell than they had planned on, so it shorted them out. Mm-hmm. It's the same way on those ropes. So the, the, the grappling hooks that were in the front of the landing craft were actually rocket-propelled, so you literally fired them, and they shot up, and mm-hmm. they had practiced this repeatedly. And like Helm's Deep style, these massive hooks? Yeah, that went, I mean, exactly. Up. It was yeah. actually kind of cool to think yeah. through... They realized, okay, we can't have guys twirling a grappling hook on the, on the <laughs> throwing shoreline, it, what, 120 throwing 120 feet, feet up, yeah, yeah like 100 feet up while being shot at. So that was good thinking on their yeah. part. So they fire these hooks, and again, the, trying to compensate for it, they thought, okay, these ropes are going to get a little bit wet. But again, they couldn't think how what they were actually planning to get that that day. So they actually had backup handheld grappling hooks mm-hmm. that the soldiers, the rangers. If the grappling hook made it halfway up, they would climb up that rope, take the handheld one off, and fire it up to the cliff's edge. Wow! And finish the job that the first one couldn't couldn't complete. So the, just so I'm I'm clear, so the big hook goes into it like sixty feet up. So they're hanging on that thing with one hand, and firing another Correct. hook to go the final forty feet up. Yeah, that's unbelievable. It is, and it's part of that planning. Like yeah. they they thought these hooks may fail. So we can't have hooks that only attach to the landing craft. We have to have hand handheld ones that people can fire on their own. Hmm. 
And obviously that proved to be very helpful. Yeah. Uh, and so it was that kind of technology and redundancy that helped with their success. Some of it was a little bit over the top, like uh, I think in the first or second wave on Omaha, they had guys with typewriters showing up on the beach to set up field operations because they, <laughs> they just thought, okay, well, we need, a, we need one of these guys to help plan. Yeah. You try and you plan based on the intel you have. Yeah. And based on their intel, obviously it worked. Hmm. Did any of those hooks that you know of spear a German like you see in Lord of the Rings in Helm's Deep where <laughs> guy's standing looking over the over the edge and all of a sudden, boom, he gets hit with a... Oh, boom. I sure hope so. Okay. <laughs> I sure <laughs> be a fitting so. fate for those Can you imagine? Nazis. Can you imagine that? Oh, my gosh. Seeing somebody like lean over the edge and the hook like, gonna hit carry their body over the... Like... The guys who got lost who went to the wrong cliff what was their experience going the, it's like, I think it's seven or eight miles yeah. uh, from, from Pont de la Perse to Pont du Ho. What was their day like? Because they had a very unique experience on D-Day. Yeah, so they had to fight overland through German lines to get to their teammates. So their, their climb was unopposed, correct? No, it, it was a... Uh, oh, it was opposed. Yeah, yeah it was opposed, okay. absolutely. That particular point is near Omaha Beach. Mm -hmm. And so when they landed, they were kind of in sight of all of those ah. big guns. So they're <laughs> so, taking fire from the side and from the top correct. of the cliff? Oh, yeah. man. So I don't think that that point was as, as contested yeah. as their primary target, but they still experienced a lot of fighting. Uh, that they were shot at, flanked, all mm -hmm. these things. So, so they had to make that overland trek to, to round up with their teammates. One of the things, though, that was beneficial to their overland trek is that the Germans were slightly occupied with, with the main invasion force yeah. that was hitting on Omaha, Utah, Sword, and Juneau. So, and gold. And gold. gold yes. And gold, yeah. And uh, not only that, but even though there were 101st Airborne drops that were off course the night before, there were still a lot of paratroopers yeah. that were fighting as they were on their way. Mm -hmm. So. I mean, yes, they encountered they encountered uh, fighting on their way up the cliff. They encountered fighting at the cliff and all the way through, hmm. and they just kept going. I, I can't imagine getting to the top and realizing that kind of screw up. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's something that I still think about. You know, like, you and I go through our day, and we, we're not perfect. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> like, you know, like <laughs> certain things happen. Like, Don't oh, ask my students, it's but like, yeah. I could have done that better. But you and I have never scaled a cliff with several units of rangers on our back yeah. realizing, oh, no, it's the wrong one. I'm not – that's not a criticism. No, I understand. I'm just trying to – because I wasn't there. Yeah. It was impossible. And I don't judge them at all. No. Because, especially since they made the Overland Trek. But it is interesting. It's like the psychological place that, the, that this commander was in to realize, oh, no, I've screwed up. He didn't descend into self-pity. Yeah. He's like, okay, okay, this is the Here's situation. What Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go over land and we're going to get there. Yep. It was the same mentality that the others had when the Rangers went over the point and they realized the guns weren't there. Yeah. Like, okay, the guns are not here. We'll just go we'll find just, them. We'll go find them. We're yeah. going to go find them. Yep. So it's, it's amazing to think that way. It was like, oh no, what do we do? It's, okay, here's what we do. Yeah. So what happened to Lieutenant Colonel Rudder? You mentioned that he was wounded uh, at Pont Ho. Was that the end of his uh, service in World War II? Did he rejoin the fight? What happened to him? Yeah, he went uh, on to serve again. He did get hurt. He went on to continue to serve in the war. He served in the Battle of the Bulge as really? well. Okay. Yeah, and uh, he actually became a, a major general in the army. Oh wow! Yeah. Okay. So one of many heroes that uh, absolutely yeah, in this in this war. In terms of the lesson. For us, I want you to share one more time some some personal experiences and your thoughts. 
we have been to Point du Ho twice, but we and we've also been to the American Cemetery at Omaha Beach. Mm-hmm. The lessons from history that you drew from the visit to basically from all the visits at Normandy kind of synthesized, if you could, kind of into your feelings and your your lessons, what you learned at that cemetery. I think the word I would use is awe. Mm-hmm. There's a statue at the cemetery near Omaha Beach that shows a youth coming out of the sea. And it was a gift from, from France to the United States. And underneath the statue is, is an inscription that basically thanks America for sending its youth to free us. As I said in the podcast, I really tried to emphasize that the parts, there are so many parts of American history that every citizen can be and should be proud of. And Point Du Ho is one of those. So are the D-Day landings. So are the paratroopers dropping into German-occupied France the night before amidst uh, unbelievable gunfire. Allies advancing on the Germans and pushing them back repeatedly to them freeing the concentration camps and bringing to light the horrors that existed there. All of the allies helped with that, but several of these are American troops doing this because it was the right thing to do. It wasn't just their job. This is what they went there to do. And yes, they were fighting for each other, for sure, but they answered the call and they went and they stayed there. And it was, it was unlike anything that anyone can experience now. They didn't have body armor. They didn't have cameras. They didn't have uh, targeted bombing. (laughs) They had carpet bombing. It was seemingly an impossible task against an evil that had never been pushed back. And they did it. And they did it repeatedly over and over and over again. And again, it is one of the many, many, many things about American history that we can all be proud of. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of Point du Ho. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.